You surprise me sometimes. You're, you're more awake when you wake up an hour early. We're going we're gonna to have service at 9 a.m. next week. Uh, so this morning my kids woke up, and actually their, their mom woke them up. She was serving in kids' ministry and had to be here earlier today, and um, it was like weeping and gnashing of teeth at my house uh, when they woke up at 7 a.m. thinking like, why is it dark? What in the world? And what planet am I in right now? And so um, if you ever wake up that early, uh, then I know that you feel the same way. All right, real quick, before we get into the text, I wanted to do an update on a campaign that we began uh, not too long ago called Join the Work. Uh, the idea behind Join the Work is that uh, you would have a place of belonging in our church, that God would both work in you and through you here at Cross Point Downtown. This is meaning getting invested and involved in community with others. Uh, we have community groups where people share life together. This means being invested in ministry together, where the ministries that uh, operate here at Cross Point Downtown are ministries that, um, that we use to advance the gospel uh, in the city of Orlando. Every week, uh, we set up and tear down this gymnasium. Uh, we have uh, children's service that they are, uh, we create an environment where they could worship God and come to know him. And there's many other activities that take place on a regular basis. So quick update is uh, join the work. Um, and so uh, here's the update. We had a need of uh, last month, our need started at a total of 14 people needing to uh, have capacity in our ministries. Uh, we had a total of nine join, which is a huge celebration, and so that leaves us with five more needed today. Uh, so if you uh, are, feel called to be a part of this church and belonging to some of the ministry that takes place, then I would encourage you, see someone at our hospitality team. Uh, they would love to help you get plugged in and get involved. Uh, there's hospitality ministry, there's cross point kids, uh, there's artist community, um, and then there's also these other various ways that you can get get uh, plugged in as well. Another part of Join the Work is sacrificial giving. And so I wanted to give you a financial update. And so um, what we did is we took the year over year, uh, kind of where we were last year, where we are this year. We have the same budget number at $15,000 is needed uh, for us to operate each month. Uh, typically in the beginning of the year, we have a slower start because the end of the year, uh, we have a considerable over budget. In fact, we almost doubled our budget for the year of December. And so it's pretty normal to have uh, some uh, a, a deficit in the beginning of the year. Uh, but that deficit is uh, significantly more than last year. And um, so you'll see that uh, if you take the total 2020 deficit, it's $6,700, where I think last year was about half of that. It was around $3,500 um, that we were behind budget last year at this time. And so uh, I just want to uh, just have you help us share in that burden together. You know it. We're asking that you would pray for it. We're also that asking that you would join the work, that you would uh, give as God calls you to give here at Cross Point Downtown. And let me, let me give you the engine, the motivation for why we give for a moment. Uh, Paul says to the church of 2 Corinthians, he says, uh, for we, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the engine for giving, the fuel for giving, isn't guilt, it's not condemnation, 
It's the God who was rich, gave up it all so that you might experience the riches of his grace. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You know the words of eternal life. And so I ask you with confidence that you would give generously, that you would give sacrificially, and that if you haven't experienced the joy or opportunity of giving, that you would start somewhere. In a couple of uh, weeks, we're going to do a, uh, a, mini, uh, a mini look at what it means to give generously, as Paul talks about it in the church of second, uh, in the book of Second Corinthians. So um, let me pray, and we'll get started in the text. So Father, thank you so much for the riches that you've demonstrated in the work of your son, Jesus. God, you've held nothing back. And Lord, uh, we thank you that you've given us your work. And Lord, you've called us to it. You've called it to, to join that work here at Cross Point downtown. So Lord, I pray that you would lay it on all of our hearts to be a part of this good work in ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Orlando, as it is in heaven. Church says together, amen. I've been asked the question many times, why Orlando? Why are, are you a pastor of a church plant in Orlando? Aren't there enough churches or ministries in Orlando? That's oftentimes the, the question that I'm asked. And, and there are many large churches in Orlando. In fact, our little church here is sandwiched between megachurches. I could announce four of them. Uh, and many people would say, well, well, what's the purpose of doing church in Orlando if there's already so many ministries in Orlando? Now, there's a worldwide emphasis of ministry here in Orlando. You have ministries like Pioneers and Wycliffe Bible Translators and Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, all of these incredible ministries that God is using for his glory so why, why are we here in Orlando? Why has God called Crosspoint to be here in this place, in this time of human history? My answer is simple. Because Orlando needs Jesus. Because Orlando needs Christ. That's why we're here. Now let me lay out for you the need that exists right now in the city of Orlando. Orlando is a global city, meaning that we are known around the world. We're not known like New York or Washington DC is known around the world. We are uniquely known as the family entertainment capital of the world. Do you know each year, nearly 70 million people visit Orlando? Nearly 70 million people visit Orlando. And there's an expansion going on at the international airport right now to uptick that number to, towards 100 million every single year. The Magic Kingdom is doing really well in Orlando, right? And so we are a part of this worldwide work of millions of people coming into and out of Orlando each and every day. Now, our city is filled with 4.3 million people. That's the broader, greater Orlando area. And there's 1,500 people that move into Orlando every single week. 1,500 people. 
By 2030, the population of Orlando is projected to exceed over 5.3 million. You might be hearing me talking about this and like, I'm getting out of town right now. (laughs) And then um, uh, another interesting statistic is that since 2010, 50% of the people that are moving into Orlando are international. And so you have the world coming to Orlando. When Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'll be with you always till the very end of age. Jesus was sending out his disciples like it was like a spark that would ignite a flame that would spread all around the known world. And God did it in the midst of Satan throwing all hell against the church. The church advanced and, the, and God was glorified and salvation abounded. And I look at that day 2,000 years ago when that commission was made for the church. And I own that commission for our church. We own that. That's ours That's a commission for us today. And the interesting thing about it for us today is we don't have to go all around the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but all around the world is coming here. And my question to you and to us and for the church in Orlando is are we equipped to share the gospel with the world that's coming here? No, we're not. Let me tell you a little bit of the spiritual climate of Orlando. Like, this is the need right now. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Orlando is the ninth most unchurched city in the United States of America. The ninth most unchurched city. We're not Bible Belt here, right? And over, there's, there's over 51% of the population has not been into the, into a church in the last year unless they were going to see someone married or buried. That was why they went. It wasn't to go and hear a sermon. It wasn't because they believed in Jesus. And so 51% of the population is considered unchurched. We are sandwiched between the unchurched cities of Seattle at number eight and Albany, New York at number 10. You put us in that context. It's like, seriously, this is the city that we live in. And then as well, we're number six as it relates to de-churched cities. When I say de-churched, I'm talking about those who are previously active in the church but have not attended in the last six months. And when I, you do further studies on this de-churched population, you realize that many of these de-churched were very vibrantly active and they're completely disengaged today. However, as it relates to our city, 89% of those who are de-churched, who have not been to church in the last six months, have what's considered a fairly orthodox view of Christianity. When I say fairly orthodox view, we don't know everybody's different view of Christianity, but they've made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It means that they also believe that Jesus died for sin, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and his resurrected life means eternal life for all that confess and believe in him. But 89% of those people are disengaged in the church today. Why? 
Why are they disengaged? Maybe they feel that the church has been unhelpful. Maybe they consider the church unnecessary. Or maybe even they consider the church as harmful because of an experience that they had that caused harm to them in some way. Now, I believe that if we're going to reach Orlando, we need our eyes both on the unchurched and the dechurched. And the way that we seek to engage the unchurched and the dechurched is with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And so I wanted to unpack that for this sermon today because I wanted to, when you leave here today and we send you out, we send you out into that world. And you have to ask, you're not here for your career. You're not here for living in the entertainment capital of the world, although it might seem appealing. But you are here as a light shining brightly in darkness so that the kingdom of light would advance in a very dark city, in a very dark place in need of God's mercy. So the big idea of today's sermon is that to live in the light is to see the light of God's glory in Jesus Christ. To live in the light, we have to see the light and the only place to see the light is to look for it in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack our text uh, right now. So verse four, chapter four, verse one. We're starting with a ministry of mercy. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by an open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, you've heard me, as we have been in the book of 2 Corinthians, really share with you that Paul's motivation in writing the book of Corinthians, the, the letter to the church in Corinth, was a defense of his apostleship meaning that the Apostle Paul had God-given authority to plant the church, establish the church, and see the church shepherded in Christ Jesus. The church that Paul had planted was now a church that was rejecting him. And they were rejecting him on superficial grounds. What were some of the superficial grounds? Well, if Paul has the blessing of God, then why did he suffer so much? We see that in chapter 1 where Paul talks about comfort in suffering. If Paul was a, a, a man who was an apostle blessed by God, then why didn't he have the look? Why didn't he have an appealing look? Or why wasn't he an appealing communicator? And Paul boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell upon him. He says that my weaknesses are not a liability, but it's God's opportunity to show his flex, his strength in a weak vessel. We even see it a little later on in chapter 4. He says, I'm but a jar of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's like an Amazon cardboard box. And this is who we are. We are this treasure. We have this treasure, the gospel, in a jar of clay. A body that will one day be discarded in this world. But we carry 
the message of first importance in Jesus Christ. So he says, I have this ministry of mercy. He says the word therefore to begin the passage. There's an old pastor named Chuck Swindoll and he says, if you ever see the word therefore in the scriptures, you got to go back and see what therefore is there for. So let's look back at one verse as uh, at verse 18 of chapter three. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So as Paul beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that glory of God in Jesus' face is changing him. It's renewing him. It's giving him purpose. It's giving him confidence. It's sending him out. It's causing Paul to see that God is not done with him yet, nor is he done with the church. That's true today, friends. God is not done with you yet, nor is he done with the church, contrary to popular opinion. God is at work marvelously. He is bringing about transformation. And in light of that, he says, this ministry isn't mine. This is a ministry of mercy given to me by God. It doesn't belong to me. If you know the story of Paul, you would know that he didn't choose the ministry. But it was God who chose him for the ministry. And it was given to him by God. He was a minister of God's mercy because he'd seen God's mercy. And so Paul says, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. Even his call as an apostle wasn't something that he could choose, but it was something that Jesus gave to him by divine revelation. And so Paul says, I don't lose heart. I do not lose heart. In the midst of opposition, I do not lose heart. In the midst of your unbelief and rejection, I don't lose heart. Now, why would he say I do not lose heart unless he maybe thought about it a little bit? And I can identify with that. Because while I could say to you with full confidence today, I do not lose heart, have there been times where I thought about it a little bit? Yeah. There are days where I thought about quitting. There are days where I thought, how can I endure another day of this? Where I felt the angst and tension of the messiness of ministry, my own inadequacies, my own shortcomings and failures mixed with your inadequacies and your shortcomings and failures. And I thought, how in the world, Lord, are you going to do anything with this? You know what? I read verse 18 of chapter 3. From one degree of glory to another, he's transforming us. And I say, God's not done with us. And he's certainly not done with me, nor was the Apostle Paul ready to throw in the towel. And he says these words. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. There was false teaching that was uh, arising or becoming more popular in the church of Corinth. And part of the reason why it was becoming more popular is because it was disgraceful and underhanded. They were leading in the way of deceit. And Paul says, I renounce deception. I will not use deception. Now, this is even popularized in our world today where, uh, where we could see the gospel as a good or a service that's provided 
to consumers who are the church and the pastor could be the salesman. That is wrong. That's where deceit comes from. If you think the gospel is a good or a service, then you've got to sell it. And if you're trying to sell it, then you're trying to make it look better than it really is. But the gospel stands alone without need of anyone to prop it up. There are no salesmen. I'm so glad that God would use a man like Tim Tebow to proclaim his gospel. I'm so glad that he would. But I will tell you this, that God doesn't need celebrity. He doesn't. It's Tim Tebow's privilege that God would use him. Or it's Kanye West's privilege that God would use him. But God does not need celebrity to prop up his image. He is doing fine and the gospel is doing fine without anyone that props him up. So we don't have to sell anything to anybody. I don't need to sell anything to you today. I can preach plainly the truth of the gospel to you without reservation because I'm first accountable to God. Secondarily, he says, as you look on, he said, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Another way that false teachers or some of these peddlers of God's word would operate is they would dilute the gospel. They would water it down. Paul says to Timothy that this is the tickling of ears. You've got to take a half truth and you make it a whole truth and you proclaim it's God's truth. But half the truth is not the truth. We are charged with proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Like this is God's word. Part of the reason why we go through books of the Bible is really for me. So I could have confidence that I am walking fully in my charge as your pastor to preach the whole counsel of God's word. Nothing left out. Not partial. And so we will not dilute the gospel, Paul says. We will not tamper with God's word. We will not twist it towards our own perversion. But we will trust that God's word is good. And that's what we need for transformation. And then he says here, but, the open, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, I live plainly before you. I'm not hiding anything. Paul, he didn't have to hide. He didn't have to, he didn't have to try to hide certain parts of his character. He didn't have to hide certain parts of the ministry. But he could live plainly. You know, in Orlando, there's been an abuse uh, by the church of some of the very things I've mentioned. Fudging the numbers. Proclaiming prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, by the way, where pastors might get up and say that if you give more generously, then you'll have that prayer answered and I'll even pray that that prayer for you. And so these false gospels are proclaimed and people are buying them and it is causing the gospel to be diminished and it later on causes the gospel to be slandered and the message of Jesus Christ not to advance And not to be heard. Paul says, no, I live as an open statement. The books are open before you. The books on my life. The books on the church. The books on who God has called me to be. And what God has created us to do together. And I would say the very same thing. This is a ministry of mercy that's given to us by God. And for God's glory. The next thing we have here is a warning. 
The warning is against the God of this age, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When Paul says the gospel is veiled, he's saying the gospel is out there. It's for all to see, but they can't see it. It has covering over it. And who are those who can't see the gospel? It's those who don't believe. And now, why is it that they can't see the gospel? It says that the God of this world is further blinding them in their unbelief. So you have two things against those who don't see the gospel here. Number one is our unbelief causes us to not see what Christ has done for us. Number two, that unbelief is highlighted or ignited by the deception of Satan to cause those who are in unbelief to stay in unbelief. This is the God of the age. Now I say the word God of the age because I think it's an appropriate translation. Yes, the scripture does say he is the God of this world, but I say the God of the age because I also want us to realize that this God, the, the God, the false God, Satan, has his limits. He's like a, a, a dog that's on a short leash. <laughs> Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. You know, I can't imagine that the enemy was very happy that day when Jesus rose again. I can't imagine that he was very happy that day when Jesus conquered death and said to Satan, you're on notice, bro. Jesus didn't call them bro, but you're on notice, man. He's the enemy and your time is short. And he put Satan on a short leash. But we have this word from the apostle Paul so that we would heed the warning. Satan is alive. Satan is active. And he's about his business of stealing, killing, and destroying just as much today as he was 2,000 years ago. Satan wants to see the gospel stopped in its tracks. He wants to see Christians fold in and fall over. He wants to see those who are blind in unbelief continue in the blindness of that unbelief. We should not underestimate the enemy, our enemy. There's an old story of the Civil War uh, general named John Sedgwick was a Union uh, general. And uh, John Sedgwick was uh, uh, looking over the fortress. Actually, he was on top of the fortress looking over enemy lines. And he got to a place on the fortress where there was an opening and he had a great view uh, to see the place of the enemy. One of the soldiers that were down below him looked up and said, uh, General Sedgwick, you, you probably don't want to stand there. And as he uh, remarked to the soldier that was down below, he said, they couldn't hit an elephant from this. Dis and then it was over. The bullet hit him. He underestimated his enemy, and the enemy took him out. Now, we have to realize that our enemy is advanced. He's got 
aim. He's a sharp shooter. He's been around a lot longer than you, and he knows every play in our book. And so we have to recognize that our enemy is intelligent. In fact, we could say brilliant. And he's brilliantly evil. And everything he wants to do is stop the advancement of the gospel. And so his heartbeat is not just to keep the unbeliever in blindness, but to render the faithful Christian unfaithful. This is why it's important that we focus on the de-churched as well as we seek to reach Orlando for the glory of God and the transformation of the gospel. Because there are many of those who are faithful, who have walked in faithfulness, but their absence of a gospel community could render them to be unfaithful. And I've seen it time and time again. Oftentimes, a precursor to people leaving the faith is people leaving the church. And so I would say that we must be undergirded in the good faith that is before us. I also want us to recognize some of the predominant lies that are believed by our culture that are told, I believe, by Satan himself. Let me recognize a couple of these lies in the world that we, that we live in today. Number one, this is one of the greatest. My truth is greater than God's truth. My truth is greater than God's truth. Somehow we think that there's this internal truth that we have to discover, and we have yet to discover it. And once we discover it, we think that everything in the world must surrender to that truth. And once we find that truth, we have to live wholeheartedly for that truth. And to deny that truth that exists within is to deny ourselves. That's the lie. Satan has caused our world to buy into that lie. And you know what it's causing? It's causing an absolute collapse in our world the collapse of the family, the collapse of the household, the collapse of anything that you want to imagine. It's not a new lie. It's a lie that Satan has repackaged many times. In fact, I would argue that Adam and Eve bought into that lie when they saw the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and they said it looks good, it tastes good, looks like it tastes good, so I'm going to take a bite. And they said that my truth is greater than God's truth. They traded the truth of God for a lie. They began to worship created things rather than the creator. And so I will tell you, whenever we think that this my truth, this internal truth, is causing us to pull away from the foundational truths of the scripture, it's a warning. And I would even argue that it's a warning from God. When you feel that happening in your life, it's God using that to say, nuh-uh. I've got a better way. That it's not walking in your truth that's going to cause you to be the best person that you could ever be. It's walking in God's truth that will cause you to be the person that God has called you to be. And this is the best version of you. It really is. I'm so convinced of it. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. That's far greater than anything you could conjure up in your own imagination. And it's something that you and I must walk in. Number two, lie of the enemy. Jesus is not enough. 
It's not that you don't need Jesus. It's just that Jesus isn't enough. If you want fulfillment, you have to go after that career path. So it's Jesus plus your career. In fact, Jesus is an entryway or a gateway into that career. So Jesus wouldn't deny you that. He wouldn't deny you the husband of your dreams or the spouse of your dreams. Or, or he wouldn't deny you the lifestyle that you've been longing for. And so it's Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's that thing you've been dreaming of. It's that thing that keeps you awake every night. It's that thing that you think I must have. And if I don't have it, then I mean nothing. I have no value. So it's not an outright denunciation of Jesus. It's just Jesus plus your idols. Well, Jesus comes not to allow you to live in your idolatry, but to kill your idolatry. And so all of the, all of the things that we want, that we think that are so important, if they don't come under the work of Christ and his lordship over us, then those things we're putting on par with Jesus, and it means that we're not truly worshiping Jesus. We're using Jesus to get what we think we want or what we need. And I pray that we would see this as a lie from Satan himself. And then the f this is the third one. I could add a hundred more, but I'm not. The last one that I'll mention today is you are enough. You're enough. You're strong enough. You're powerful enough. You're good enough. You can do it. Go, go, go. And so Satan stands as your cheerleader. Come on, you could do it. Go, don't think about Jesus. Don't think about the need of the Holy Spirit. Don't think about your weaknesses. Don't think about your inadequacies. You're strong enough. You're powerful enough. You're mighty enough. You can do what you want. You can get what you want. Go and take it. You're enough. It's a lie. Because the Bible says we're not enough. If we were enough, why would we need a Savior? Why would Jesus come and have to die for us? If we could be good enough, why would Jesus need to live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf? Do you hear how this web of lies just infiltrates our, our hearts and our culture? And I, I tell you, look for them on Facebook today. You'll find them. You'll find people who have bought into that lie full force, in full force. And they are living that lie. And it's a lie from the God of this age. We have to see those lies in our own life. But here's the other thing. We have to help denounce those lies that exist in those around us so they can see the light of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in his face. So it's not only important that we know these lies for our lives so that we walk in faithfulness, but it's important that we know these lies and expose these lies very lovingly. I'm not talking about you're just some kind of uh, unearthing uh, all these, these things in people's lives, but, but very lovingly, very discerning, very carefully, the lies that exist in those around us. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I mention this verse because it's important that we know that we're either in the grip of God or we're in the grip of Satan. It's true. The scriptures are plain and clear about it. Either you are walking in the grip of God and he is the one that's controlling you, motivating you, or you're walking in the grip of Satan. It's either or. 
Now, in people's unbelief, they don't even believe that Satan exists. And Satan's really great with that. He's, he's fine with that. He's fine if people don't know if he exists. Because if they won't acknowledge him, he knows they're in his grip. So we have to acknowledge him. We have to denounce him. And we have to be obedient to Christ because we're under his authority and under his control. Not the authority of the God of this age. And then uh, my last point is light out of darkness. Light out of darkness. Looking at uh, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourself, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul was convinced that the ministry was not about him. It's not about me. Can we all say that together? It's not about me. Let's try it one more time. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. You have one life to live. One life. Can I just tell you that your one life to live isn't about you? It's about Christ. If I had a thousand lives, I would live them all for the gospel. I'm so convinced of this word of truth that I can say that if I had a thousand lives, I would live them all for the gospel. But I've got one life. And with this one life, I am going to spend it. And I'm going to make sure by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am going to make sure that that life is lived in fullness of purpose, not for myself, but for the glory of God, for your sake, for the sake of Christ, because I am his servant. And because I am his servant, I am a foot washer of the church. That we would live this way as we interact with Orlando. That we would know it's not really about our appetites. It's not about our entertainment. It's not about our career advancements. But it's about living in such a way that we shine brightly the work of Christ. Paul said this to the church in Corinth in chapter 1 uh, of 1 of Corinthians. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, chose what is lowly and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The church in Corinth was the misfits. In fact, all the city of Corinth was filled with misfits. It was the place where you could be a nobody and become somebody. And so everyone flocked to Corinth because it was the place where they could, they could make a name for themselves. Paul reminds them that you didn't have a name for yourself in coming here, nor do you need a name for yourself. Because not many of you are wise. When you take the standards of the world around us, we don't have wisdom. This is not wise that we came in here on time change Sunday of all Sundays to come and hear a guy preach for 45 minutes. I'm going to try to keep it a little less than that. But for crying out loud, you all here for this? But there's, there's a movement. There's an expectation of the spirit to work. So call me a fool because I am allowing God to minister to me and to change me and to sanctify me. And so that it would be a fuel for my worship, not only on Sunday, 
but on Monday and Tuesday and every day of the week that moment by moment I would trust in him and I would consider my calling and I would know my place. You notice that the calling, there's, there's really no requirements other than just you surrendering and by faith believing. There's no resume that's needed. There's no special qualifications or skill set. It's a heart that's bowed low. It's a person that's on their knees. It's a person that's trusting that Christ can use them. It's a person that is desperately dependent on the Holy Spirit for every day of their life. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to spend the last few minutes just meditating on this thing called faith that God has given you. And I want us to see that it's a miracle. It is an absolute miracle. We have two things against us in seeing Jesus, in seeing this light. And the two things that are against us is number one is we're already walking in disbelief, in rebellion. That's number one. No one naturally comes out of the womb trusting and praising Jesus. We are all born sinners. We are dead to sin. We have no, we're dead because of sin. We have no life in Christ. But the other thing is, is that there's a further blinding that happens among us to ensure that we will not see that light. So there is nothing in you that could see that light even on your best of days. In fact, even on the best of days, you'll still see darkness. And so the gift of salvation is the gift of faith where God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, opens your eyes so that you might see him. This is what Paul was convinced of because it happened to him. He was going to Damascus to terrorize the Christians there. That was his journey as, he was, as Saul of Tarsus was going to Damascus to wreak havoc and terror among the Christians. And it was in that place that God grabbed him and God said, you're mine. If you're here today, putting your faith and trust in Jesus we have to acknowledge that the same thing happened to us. That we were going the opposite direction. And somehow, in the midst of our waywardness, in the midst of our rebellion, God opened our eyes. He helped us see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Unless he turned on the light, we would still be in darkness. And what Paul is evoking here is the same light that God spoke into creation when it was dark. He said, let there be light. And out of the darkness, a bright light shined. And just as he did it in creation, he has done it in you. Into the darkness of your life, the, the bright light of Jesus Christ has shined because God said, let there be light in you, Roger, in you, Ashley, in you, Josiah, in you, Ruth, in your life. This is what God said. This is what God has done. And it's a gift of faith. So for me, when I was college, going to college up at UCF, I was supposed to play golf that day. It was raining. I couldn't play golf. So 
what else does a college kid do but open their Bible? <laughs> it didn't happen in my own free volition. It happened because God laid it there, put it plainly before me. And I opened it to Colossians 1.15. And I read these words. The light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These were the words. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For God was pleased that all his fullness should dwell in him, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Not only has God allowed you to see the light, but God has paid the debt that you would owe if you were to ever see the light of the glory of God. He did that through the work of Christ on the cross. That he died for your sins. That he loved you so much. In this whole world, there's not a whole lot of love in it. But God loves you more than this whole world ever could. He did so, so much that he sent his only begotten son whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life where else can we go lord where else can we go you have the words of eternal life let's pray father thank you as we take communion lord we thank you we remember this blood-bought work that your body was broken so that lord we could be whole so that your blood was spilt so that we could drink freely from the waters of eternal life. Lord, where else would we go? That this light, Lord, would captivate our hearts. You would protect us from the evil one. And you would cause us to every day live in desperate dependence upon you. And by your spirit's power, we know we will. Jesus name the church says together amen